Hello everyone, this is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. Welcome to another episode of What We Gonna Do, where we're discussing elections. Now today we are talking to a good friend of mine, Robert Avalon, who is the Deputy Secretary of Policy and Planning for the California Secretary of State's office. They are the ones who are in charge of actually executing our elections. And he is in charge of figuring out what scenarios might be uh, at play when we're gonna have to execute a safe and effective and accessible election for all of us. And so COVID-19, as we know, AKA Ms. Rona, is going to potentially be a huge factor in terms of how that is executed. And so we talked to him about what that might mean and what measures are being thought about or already implemented to prepare for that. Let's just kick it off. Like, tell us, uh, what, who are you? What kind of, what's your position at the Secretary of State's office? Sure. I'm Robbie Avalon. I'm Deputy Secretary of State for Policy and Planning and been there for about a year or so. Okay, great. Well, what a, what a wonderful, uneventful time for you to have joined the team. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad they have someone with your energy level. So I know that there's been some recent changes in how we're conducting elections, especially for the upcoming one in November. But can you give us a, just a rundown of how Typically, what does it take to put on an election in California? Yeah, so elections, they're actually run not on a statewide level. There's 58 different counties that have 58 registrars of voters, and they also have their own unique ways of how they conduct elections. So that's one thing that, that we're educating a lot of people about how elections are run. So how, say, Contra Costa does it is different from how Los Angeles County does it from what Sacramento County and how they do it. And I think kind of a, an interesting thing about this is that there are statewide rules and there's statewide laws and national laws of how to conduct elections, but there's a lot of other things that counties can adjust a little bit down to, you know, what type of machine that they use, how much staffing that they use, and all the way down to how the registrars are selected or elected or appointed. Even uh, that makes a little bit of a change on how elections are done. But they all do reporting on the same, have the same deadlines for reporting back to the state. They all have the same accessibility uh, and watchdog type rules to make sure that uh, everyone has a chance and a fair shot at running for office and also being able to have access to a ballot to be able to vote by the end of election. So uh, and where do the hiccups, sorry, where do the, you said you, you also are kind of talking, you, you're, you have a few groups you're looking after. You're obviously kind of, assisting the counties and kind of how they administer this. You're uh, kind of talking directly to voters about their experience with voting. And you're also talking to candidates about whether or not their campaigns or kind of the election infrastructure around their campaigns is sufficient. What are the usual hiccups that you see on a typical election? You know, not this one, but what you usually are like preparing to expect. Sure. I think whenever there's a large turnout election, a lot of things do happen, I think, because California, we've been on the forefront of providing so many options for voters and it also for registrars to implement it. So sometimes with a very high turnout election, you know, there might be longer lines than usual. We also do things like same day voter registration. So that might make the line just a little bit longer, but we think it's, it's definitely worth the ability of someone to come in and correct their voter registration or get registered on the same day for voting. So I think some of those new advent things that we've come up with to help accessibility for, for voters. I wouldn't really call them a hiccup, but it's just a, a, probably an additional step for, for folks, but it's better to have those additional steps than not have those steps at all and be 
blocked out from being able to vote uh, on election day. So I think those are some of the things that, that we do see that can make it a little bit more difficult on higher turnout elections, like say for this upcoming November or November of 2016, or the highest turnout in probably a generation, which was 2008. But overall, we think it runs pretty smoothly. And for anything that we need to address, we try to address it pretty quickly, either in real time with the counties or working with community groups as it's happening, and also addressing it so that uh, it doesn't happen in future elections. But uh, yeah, that's what we try to do and react for some of these elections. So, I mean, in a, in a corona-free world, what a, what a world uh, yeah. to contemplate. What would have been, I mean, with the assumption being that 2020 was always going to be a high turnout election, you know, no matter where you fall on the, the insanity scale. But what were you anticipating kind of being the biggest concern? So a couple of things that are relatively new in elections that we didn't have, say, in the 90s or early 2000s, I think, is probably misinformation and probably deliberate misinformation to have certain elements of the population not come out to vote or just passing out, passing around information, passing it as news. And then probably cybersecurity concerns. These are kind of newer things that have been popping up probably in the more uh, last four or five years versus kind of election stuff that we've heard about for the last 40, 50 years or so. So that's something that's been relatively uh, new. And also those, those types of things are also changing so quickly. So I think that's one of the things that we've done in, in the state of California, opening up an office of cybersecurity to uh, combat that uh, and give kind of more tools and toolbox for, for counties to counteract that. And probably a couple other things is, you know, like I said, with, with high turnout, I think information to first-time voters and new voters, we definitely don't want to leave them behind. So first-time voters letting them know how they can vote, where they can vote, when they can vote, and letting them know and dispel some of the rumors or myths that they have about voting. So we want to make sure that they're, they're knowledgeable so that they know that, that some things that they may perceive as a, as a barrier that they actually aren't there or that they can come in person and we can assist them with whatever needs that they have. Whether it's correcting a ballot, their information on their ballot or correcting their address or the language assistance or just registering to vote on the same day. Those are all things that we want to make sure that the public knows about and is aware of so that we can help them. In terms of cybersecurity, like what are the types of security vulnerabilities that the system has? And have you seen those? Has someone taken advantage of those vulnerabilities in the past? Yeah, well, I think the state of California has always had high and strict safety concerns and measures and standards. And that got even to a higher degree after 2016 elections, where all the counties had to recertify the type of election systems that they were using and machines so that it's up to speed, it's up to code, and that it, none of it is connected on, online so it can't be affected by it, say, an outside uh, entity. And also all the way down to having chain of custody of ballots and how it gets to, to the counties to get, to get counted. Those are all secure ways that's been vetted and been updated to make sure that things that we're concerned about doesn't happen. So that's just on, on the how to run elections side of things. A couple of other things, too, is like we said, the Office of Cybersecurity and misinformation. So that's another thing that we that's always a moving target, but we're trying to, to meet the times, the current times with it, with having staff that's able that that's capable of taking you know complaints from the public to point out, say, social media 
posts that are deemed as misinformation. And, you know, finding that fine line between misinformation versus someone just expressing the First Amendment rights of an opinion for a candidate or against a candidate. I think most of that will fall on that First Amendment line, but some sometimes it crosses over into blatantly illegal and either vote suppression or blatant misinformation by giving the wrong election date um, or the wrong time, or the wrong locations on purpose. So those are the type of things that uh, we take very seriously and have addressed and and one of the first offices in the country to open up an office of cybersecurity. So we're always taking a look and trying to keep keeping up to date to all threats, not just say from other countries, but any entity that wants to, to threaten. Um, well, yeah, it's like the, the call could be coming from inside the house. Exactly. <laughs> it often uh, is. You know, any, anyone with a, a laptop and, and online or anyone who wants to try to, to, to do something for interfering, I think, or, or wants to just, type up and put up five posts within an hour can influence an election or influence a group. So we want to, we need to stay on top of it as much as we can. And also not on top of not just that, but the kind of the reverse of it is any Californian now can help us and be our eyes and our ears online, whether it's like a Reddit thread or a Facebook post or a, a Twitter, like someone just tweeted something out, like being able to flag that, send it up the flagpole to us so we can deal with it in real time. And, and hopefully, take it down within minutes of it being up. What's the, what's the best way to alert you that something fishy is going on? Sure. There's a couple ways. One is directly to your county registrar because they, they, they can also get it to us. And then also from our Secretary of State website, contacting us, whether it's our press office, our communications office, or our cybersecurity team itself, they, they check it basically 24-7 on their, on their emails and get alerts on their emails if they're at home. And then also, so we, so we shouldn't be, you know, sliding into Robbie's DMs. To actually, feel free, to, feel free to do so too. You know, I, I, I'm more than happy to to, to help out folks on to be accessible to the voting population. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I think one of the cool things about this is that partners, social media platform partners, have been great for this. So Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and the like. So last election in 2018, over 90% of the ones that we flagged for those posts were taken down. So that's something that we want to be able to, to let the public know that this is available. We have a high success rate once it's deemed misinformation and the platforms have been cooperating and are on the same page as us and the public of making sure that only the truth is out there for on elections and also balancing out what is First Amendment rights and not violating that. Great. Okay. Well, then that's a pretty nice overview of the landscape that we were anticipating. Let's get into Miss Rona and yeah. how she has kind of upended our well-laid plans for what was right. already going to be a difficult ex- to execute election. Actually, a, a couple of days before this, May 8th, Newsom announced some pretty ambitious goals for mail-in voting that I think can kind of help us frame the types of measures that California is prepared to institute to guarantee a safe and well-conducted and high participation election. And can you outline some of that stuff and how it's bolstered things you already had in place? Sure. So before coronavirus, the California voting population was roughly 75% has a vote by mail. So roughly three quarters of people already get a ballot in the mail, but it's the other quarter. So we have, we have, 20 million registered voters. We're talking about 5 million people who don't uh, have that option to to do mail-in voting. They only have that one option on election day of 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. on a Tuesday, and they only have 13 hours versus 
those that get it in the mail, they basically have 29, 28 days or so to pick and choose when they want to get their ballot in. And they also could just do it from the comfort of their own home. So some of the things that we've done before is been pretty good over the last 15, 16 years of getting people to sign up to, to have a, to be permanent vote by mail voters. And also as recently as uh, this past year of eliminating the postage so people can turn in their ballot without ever having to leave their home and pop it into their mailbox and just walk back into their walk back into their house. And that's how voting uh, is is able to uh, people are able to vote that way before coronavirus. So what we're doing is kind of learning from these lessons and and behaviors of, of voters that we can expand it out to five million, five and a half million more voters so that they have that option. So that their option isn't only just to go in in person to the community center or their church or the grocery store where they go and vote. Their option is they can they have it just like vote people who vote by mail. So they can do it at home or drop it off on their way to work or, or uh, on their way to school and have it be free of charge, which is, I think, a huge barrier that a lot of people don't think about is. is right. People don't even think about stamps. Um, yeah, I, I, mean, I actually I actually don't know if I know. Tell me if I'm wrong or right about this. Is a, does, a, does one stamp cost 44 cents? Do you higher. know? See, the fact that we, we are still kind of guessing is, yeah, it's around 51 cents. Dang. Okay. It's not even two for a dollar. That's uh, it's not even two for a dollar. And then the crazy thing about stamps is that you, know, you, you don't just buy one stamp. You have to buy, you know, a lot of times you buy a book of stamps, 20 of them. So you're looking at $10 just because you just need one of those stamps. Just to vote. Yeah. Just to vote. And Which is more or less a poll tax. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's something that's a financial barrier for a lot of people. And not only that, it's, it's a kind of a cultural barrier. Like you and I are, are, are the same age. I think we're probably within a year of each other. Like our generation or people around our age, I can't think of a time when we mailed something off and put a stamp on it. I'm all electronic, all my bills are paid online. I Venmo everyone, I, huh. I wire it off of Wells Fargo where it's just monthly. My Spotify account, you know, I don't even look at when I pay it. It just, it just deducts it every month. So that's how you and I are set up and probably those who are younger than us as well, all the way down to, to those who are 18, like that's their world. So we have probably, a big chunk of the electorate who never mail anything plus buying envelopes just for the mailing and just mailing stuff in general not just for voting so it's it's a different mindset for for a lot of folks so having people not having to worry about that just fill it out and drop it off in their own mailbox or drop it off at in drop boxes like these are things that we have for convenience for everyone so so the plan is now if i if i understand gavin's announcement that we will be uh, we will be offering that option or we will have offered that option to 100 percent of registered voters yeah uh, in time for november so what's that look how what does that mean in terms of like the logistics of making that possible sure so there's a little over 20 million registered voters so that's now over 20 million pieces of mail that will go out to to voters just so that they can get their ballot which is a great thing so that's amazing but the thing is a lot of the people who will be getting it will be voting for the first time by mail. So I think being able to educate uh, first time vote by mail voters on what this piece of paper is, that it's actual ballot, it's not a sample ballot, it's the actual ballot, that you, you fill it out and then reminding people to sign at the where it's a signature for the voter. That's very important. A lot of, I think the top reasons why some of these ballots do not get counted or are challenged to be counted is that there is a missing signature. So. Mm -hmm. You know, things like that, that we have to make sure that 
5 million new voters are aware of. And then plus out of the 20 million total voters, a lot of them, and, I, and I'm kind of falling this category too. So I am a vote by mail voter. That means I get one in the mail every year, but I also go to the polls and, and uh, vote there. So I'm not using my mail voter, my, my, my ballot in the mail. I have it as an option, but I still go in person because I want to check out what the in-person stuff. You want is. that sticker. Yeah, I want that sticker. I want to be able to run into some of the staffers that are over there. Also, it, I mean, for my job, it, it's, it makes sense for me to check out to see, like, what's the status? How long the lines are? are they, how are voters feeling? What's engagement looking like? Uh, what's customer service looking like? So I, I'm going to do that anyway. So I just fall in line and, and vote as well to get my own kind of like that what secret right. customer type incognito just kind of yeah. like just a normal voter here Wait. but i'm sure there there are millions of other voters who are like me that already get it in the mail but choose not to so i think those are these are kind of a cultural shift now with coronavirus coming into play for me it was more of a luxury and i just wanted to check it out so i just vote in person but i have that option so i will now fully in, take advantage of it and mail it uh, ahead of time just so you know social distancing and also we have a second wave of coronavirus that's going to pop up in say in october or november right during the election time it's safer for for everyone and to, to be able to exercise that safer option and that's kind of the the thinking behind giving everyone a vote by mail so that they have that option to mail it in without having to have that in person having to go in person so they have options and then right and then the other aspect of it is on the executive order we're still taking a look at how in-person voting will occur. Why we think that's really important is because of, besides the mail ballot, there's still a lot of people who only can vote in person for many other reasons. Some of it are those in the disabled community. If you know, they need assistance and they, that's one way to get assistance is by showing up in person and getting voter assistance there. Others, there's language assistance in person at in-person voting locations. So if English isn't a first language for some citizens that are voting, they can get language assistance there to help clarify what is on the ballot. And that's just a, uh, just a quick question about that. How, you know, given that these are all administered in the counties in California, I mean, how is it that you guys can guarantee language assistance? Like, I mean, California has every language in the world, I'm sure represented in the voting population how do you make sure that there's someone on there like is it, is it based on who's registered in that county yeah um, you, you i mean you, you got it down trace so we take a look at kind of the demographics of who has check marked a, a box that this is the language that i speak and they hit a certain threshold so in california it's it's roughly three percent so if it hits that threshold then that county area needs to offer assistance whether it's written assistance or language assistance in person that needs to be available. And that's on top of the, na the, the nationwide standard. So we have a federal standard also. So we have a federal one and then that state goes above and beyond. So we have uh, a whole other section of other languages that are offered in those counties or those parts of counties where those populations are. So, and something that we've been proud of having more access to the ballot. And remember everyone who votes, they're all already American citizens. They're all Americans. I think one thing that helps a little bit more is being able to understand what is on the ballot, whether it's English or another language. A lot of the times understanding what's on the ballot is very difficult. So for you or I, for example, with English being our main language, even when we read certain ballots, we're seeing it for the first time and not really understanding it. Like sometimes it gets so complex, but having that extra language assistance 
or uh, assistance for those who are with disabilities is very helpful in helping them make their the most informed decision for themselves. Ultimately, it's their decision how they're going to vote, but the more information that we can provide and more clarity for them on an unbiased way at the in-person location uh, just helps electorate in general. So let's talk a little bit about the electorate and your role in kind of shaping that. I mean, obviously your job is to say, whoever's registered to vote, here's the system that you can rely upon and we'll do our best to explain that and uphold that. What is your role, if any, in growing the, I mean, 20 million people, I mean, how many does the state of California have? Roughly 30? Uh, we're all, uh, right around 40, actually. Yeah. Right around 40. So we had, I would assume that, like, basically how many people could be registered who aren't currently? Yeah, so we have probably roughly another 18 or 19 percent more voters that we can register to vote and be on the rules to be ready to vote. But I think that's one of the biggest reasons why we also have offered same day voter registration. So this past March is the first time anywhere you can go in and vote is also where you can go in and register to vote on the same same day. It doesn't sound like much, but people just assume that it's already been happening but it hasn't. So this is the first time ever was this past March and we want to continue uh, to allow that to happen. How many people did it? We're still looking at the numbers and, and finalizing that, but it's definitely looking like the most have taken advantage of it ever in, in California. It's what it looks like because of how many locations were offered to do so and also where all those locations are located. It's where uh, we've placed a lot of polling locations and vote centers at where a lot of first-time voters are taking advantage of. So like universities or colleges is also a good location where now students or young people who haven't voted or who just turned 18 can come in and register the vote for the, for the first time. Um, and then probably another thing that we've implemented over the past uh, year and a half or two years or so is pre-registration. So if you're a high school student that's 16 or 17, you can actually fill out uh, a registration ballot looks like any other voter registration ballot. You can also do it online. So that means when they turn 18, they're automatically added to the rolls to, to vote um, in the county that they uh, reside in, just turned 18 in. So that's been very helpful in getting a few hundred thousand other students when they turn 18, they don't have to re-register, they're already there and ready to go. So providing that access to the ballot for the youth has been helpful. And then also what I think you've been familiar with as well is automatic voter registration or motor voter. So those that go to the DMV and, and sign up or re-up, say their license or get a new license or move their, their address, that also updates information on the voter registration for the county and for us as a state as well. So I think all of these have helped us give great information to, so that there are more accurate rules, voter rules on election day and also just has it to be a much smoother process for the voters and the counties that are running elections. I will give I will give a voter a voter anecdote of my own. So I moved to LA late 2018. And so this past March primary was my first time voting since I moved here and I was still registered in Sacramento. I was like still getting all of like Steve Hansen's mailers. I was like, Oh my God. But I went to the polls, I think the day before the vote and um, with a friend who's from LA and who kind of helped me step through like the same day registration process. And I will say it was very easy. It was very straightforward. And I voted just right there at the, actually there's really easy to use machines. I was impressed. I was like, good on the tech. I mean, I will speak from my own location. I'm sure it varied depending on where you were. And I was so glad I wasn't in those lines the next day. But I, I can say that as, a, as someone who's taken advantage of the infrastructure, it did work well for me. So 
I'm sure you are a hundred percent to, you know, responsible for that. So thank you, Robbie. Oh, thank you. No, I'll, I'll, I'll take the credit, but not the blame, I guess. Is that what kind of stands <laughs> Yeah, I think um, that's probably a good way. No, one of the, in, in seriousness, the kind of the, the cool thing that LA is doing and that you were able to take advantage of is to have in-person voting for early options up to 10 days before the election. So you can have the election day in-person experience instead of that Tuesday, you did it on Monday. They can also do it that Sunday or Saturday before or a full week before that and, and that weekend before. So there's two weekends and the days in between before election day so that people have all the time to come by and take care of their voting, their voting needs, whether it's updating their stuff or, or like yourself registering to vote. We try to encourage everyone to do it and choose all the other days that are available besides the last day, election day. So I think that, you know, we've seen Wisconsin and Ohio now dealing with, you know, very different circumstances in terms of how it affected their primaries. And a lot of this, you know, it seems like California is way ahead of the curve in terms of the types of systems and procedures that they're prepared to execute over other states' preparedness. I mean, and on top of that, California has urban, it has rural, it has every language, it has every kind of ethnicity, it has kind of like a lot of different scenarios that some states, you know, may, may be lucky to have only one or two of those things that they need to prepare for. How do you share with other states kind of the best practices that you've come up with? I mean, is California best practices or is it kind of cherry picking from it, across the country and just putting it into California? You know, it's a type of street that's a two-way street. So some of the, the best features that we have talked about and implemented, it's because we were able to share that information with other states. So states like Colorado, um, you know, Washington, Oregon have already done a lot of the stuff that we're moving forward with as well. Um, and other states on the East Coast or other practices. So we've been a great communicator with other states of the things that we're implementing, mostly because we're the largest state by far. So taking things from other states and scaling it up to uh, a state that has over 20 million voters, you know, that's, that's the equivalent of, you know, several times. It's like 10 or 12 times the size of, say, Oregon or Colorado, uh, if not more. So taking ideas that other counties have that work for them and scaling it up in, in California has been something that we have been trying to, to do and make sure that the research is done correctly. So when it's time for game time in, in California, that's done right. The counties are ready for it. We're ready for it. And also the voters are ready for it and, and know that these are options available for them. And like I said, it's a two-way street. So we've kind of picked what's worked great for other states and vice versa. States asking us about, hey, when you implemented this, how did this look like? And kind of the cool thing I know you pointed out before with me, Trey, that we've, we've talked about in the past, it's the state of California has every kind of population imaginable. So, you know, we have rural, we have suburban, we have urban, we have every type of ethnicity, and we have, you know, more that high temperature, uh, low temperature, coastal, inland. We have every type of geography and every type of demographic and every type of geographic area in the state of California that many other states can, can learn from how things are implemented from certain portions of our state. So this is our information that we do share with other states. Uh, and then our Secretary of State is part of this coalition of other Secretary of States that share information with each other share best practices and best ideas. And our Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, is one of those, those leaders on a nationwide front in sharing that information and also addressing any accessibility barriers 
that we see in California and using the best practices from around the country, bring it back here into California and kind of put our own spin on it so that it works for California and then implement it. So on top of all of the kind of typical things that were used to intimidate voters of color, immigrant voters, we also now have even the threat to the postal service, which I'm not sure how seriously California is taking that threat or what contingencies there might be, but that's a big concern is that the free option to mail your ballot could become imperiled. So how are you addressing those, that like specifically, how are you making people of color feel like the voting is not going to be taken from them, which I think is a lot of what people fear in this election. So basically to recap, uh, my question was about the concerns around disenfranchisement, specifically to kind of immigrant minority communities, like to what extent is the Secretary of State's office taking active measures to prevent that? And, yeah, uh, it's, it's been a priority of myself and for the Secretary of State to make it a priority for a lot of other people in the elections community. It's also been a priority uh, for a very long time for community advocate groups as well, whose sole purpose is to provide equity for uh, communities that have been marginalized in the past or are continued to be marginalized to this day. And we all have our own different perspectives. So the Secretary of State, you know, coming, having parents that he's grown up and being kind of first generation Californian and then myself uh, being a first generation American with my parents coming from the Philippines. So, you know, we have this immigrant experience from our families, you know, from, from different parts of the world, but having an, uh, unique immigrant experiences here. And now kind of flash forward to today, I, I have those experiences with me and I always take a look at things in that lens. And so does the Secretary of State. And I think that policy gets a little bit sharper and, and broader as well as we take a look at through our own lens and then also having and, and involving a lot of the community advocacy groups that do this and have done this for a very long time uh, so that all the voices are heard when it comes to this all the way down to not just opening up policies so that we have better access to the ballot language translations and then same day voter registration and trying to knock down these barriers financial barriers like we just talked about with stamps but also all the way down to on election day. So we have election observers from both our office, from the federal offices, and also from community groups so that we can identify issues and problems that we see and deal with them in real time and address, with, address it so that some of those problems that, that do arise, that they're taken care of and dealt with very swiftly so that those communities can continue to engage and be able to cast their ballot and, and, and cast their their vote and all the way down to making sure that we don't have barriers for for communities so that they have elected officials that look like themselves so we want to be able to have accessibility for those who are running for office whether they're first-time candidates or candidates for the first time coming out of some of these communities that want to engage public policy to help their communities that they're coming from and representing so we want to make sure that we're taking care of of all that and it's been a priority of myself and with the Secretary of State taking this lead to be able to do so. And it's very, very helpful to have a governor that's also very supportive of this, with our governor having been mayor of one of the most diverse cities as well from San Francisco, and a legislature that is very aware of this issue as well. So we're all uh, very much in sync as we move forward on some of these policies. And it's being shown right now of how we all take a look at it. We may be from different branches of government and from different geographic areas, 
uh, and different levels of experience. But when you see things like, say, the executive order just a couple days ago, that's able to be done because we've been communicating for so long with each other and have uh, confidence in each other to make sure that when something like this happens, that we're able to move and act on it and do it deliberately, do it decisively and do it correctly. I mean, without kind of putting you too much on the spot, given the temperature and the political environment we have, are you more concerned than ever about people trying to suppress these voters or intimidate them or? You know, we, we always have it on uh, our forefront to make sure that these marginalized communities aren't marginalized just on election day. I think this is something that all the way down from the very beginning of how they get registered to vote, or just like we said, of having candidates. Oh, yeah. let, let my, let, I'm just saying, let my fire truck go by. I mean, I'm going to have to preface these episodes by being like, just for context, we're in downtown Los Angeles. I just don't want it to block out what you're saying. Okay, go on. Uh, and also one other thing, you, you should get sponsorship from the LA fire department. So. You know, a, a hose company or something. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so for those, uh, in those communities, it's, it's been a priority of ours so that the system is set up, not just on election day, but way earlier on for registration to vote all the way down to language accessibility and also having community advocates be, have a, a direct line with us for communicating so that when they see something that affects the communities that they're advocating for, that we can see it and address it as quickly as possible. And then I think when it, all that kind of sh shapes the foundation, so when it comes to election day, hopefully a lot of those issues were dealt with beforehand or addressed beforehand so that when it comes to election day, it's running pretty smoothly. And the amount of issues that we would have faced on election day is much more minimal because of all the amount of time and effort that we've done beforehand. Because election day, it's just one day out of the year. We have 364 other days. And I think that we use those other days to address those issues, implement different policy procedures, educating the public, and then also having as much of a community presence at all locations so that we can observe and see if there is intimidation going on or if there is misinformation going on or people are putting up barriers to for, to the ballot and accessibility for for communities you know this is something that we have done at least definitely since i've come on board and also for our current secretary of state has made it a top priority and i think counties have done this as well and the community advocates that have been on the ground have been doing this for a very long time and also kind of the the cool thing about some of the involvement that's been going on is that any californian has been and can be a part of uh, this effort, making sure that we have equal rights and equity for everyone when it comes to voting. So anyone can participate, hold up their phone, record it, send it to me, send it to the Secretary of State's office, send it to the county. So we have, in theory, 40 million sets of eyes and ears out there in California that can point to us, as opposed to just the, a couple of hundred folks on the, on the ground for just elections. And I think that's something that a responsibility that we hope that everyone can embrace and, and take a look at and, and share that information with us. Okay, great. Well, there's just a couple more things if we could answer these briefly. I think one of the scenarios, I mean, since your job is to kind of model different scenarios that could be going on in the November election, like what is a nightmare scenario? I mean, like what is the worst that you could possibly imagine either coronavirus or some sort of like rampant election issue or tampering like what is that scenario and like what steps are you guys taking to mitigate it yeah i i, I think kind of the forefront of everyone right now because it's 
all day, every day, all the way down to how you and I are now interacting through Zoom is the coronavirus and the pandemic that has occurred and the loss of life that has occurred. I think the biggest worry and biggest concern and is the reason why the governor put out his executive order is in anticipation. So, you know, the worst case scenario is that this epidemic comes back very, very heavy and has more loss of life. That is the worst case scenario. And then when it comes down to not just loss of life, but when it comes to running elections, you know, that affects poll workers who want to show up or don't want to show up because of the, the they're worried about their own safety. Voters who, whose only option is to come in and vote in person, choose not to as well because of the coronavirus. I think these are the things that we think about uh, and are worried about. And that I think that adds to the worst case scenario is that it shuts down everyone's options and their capability even more. And then also on top of that, just knowing that if more people are losing their lives, that's something that we're worried about and want to make sure that we balance out and make sure that the safety of everyone is considered and thought about. So I think worst case scenario is coronavirus having such a heavier effect and heavier casualty and death toll in November. That it could shut down the polls. You know, that, that, would be, we're, that would we're, be an outcome potentially. Yeah, you know, we're, we're in touch with all the health officials. And if this does get deadlier, you know, we, we want to be able to anticipate and have discussed, uh, we want to be able to have already discussed potential options if coronavirus gets uh, deadlier or another pandemic or, you know, some confluence of flu and, and coronavirus that is also part of a worst case scenario. So we have run through these scenarios. Yeah. What would it take if, if this were an option that we were considering because November is federal. So it's not like a primary where the state has some, I'm assuming, discretion. What would it actually take logistically to move the election from November? Uh, Either I, within November or past? Like, is there even a scenario where we can entertain that? No, yeah, constitutionally, we are have to hold it because it is a federal, just like you said, it's not a primary where every state gets to pick and choose. It's a federal election. Everyone, every state and every ter- U.S. territory has that same day for choosing their offices. So that day cannot be moved back, as is what we've, we've seen. Uh, so that really is an option to move it back to say, let's postpone it to January or so. That's something that, that looks like isn't an option. So okay. all that gets kind of thrown in there for kind of worst case scenarios. And we're keeping an eye on it daily, uh, daily calls, daily updates. And we're hoping and, and praying for the best. And, and just in case things get to the worst case scenario, we want to have already planned out and thought of those scenarios and how we can implement an election that is still accessible to everyone and balances out the safety of the public and for everyone who want, who's involved. So they don't have to pick and choose their own safety versus being able to vote. We wanted to provide those options so that they can do both. Right. Uh, I mean, you guys really dodged a bullet or dodged a pandemic by having it when it was already. Um, lastly, what is the future, you know, as an elections official, kind of having to forecast like where, I mean, obviously a move towards greater accessibility, kind of empowering all, you know, historically marginalized populations. What does voting look like in 2050? Oh, wow. This is, this is a great question. You know, I, I hope that as the optimist that I am, that in 2050, every barrier to accessibility for voting is, is addressed, that information that is out there is readily accessible for everyone who needs it. And, you know, things are done 
in a high confidence way. I, I can't guess technologically what things will be going on in 2050. Just like maybe 15 years ago, I wouldn't have guessed what an iPhone would look like. Or to be honest, three months ago that I'd be using Zoom 24-7. So, sure. you know, technologically, I, I, I can't really guess of what technology will look, will look like in 2050. But I can guess and project that what I hope the philosophy and, and the lens that people take a look at in elections, where it's fair, it's equitable, everyone has a chance to be able to vote and choose if they want to vote. And then those that want to run for office, that there aren't extra hoops or extra steps for certain people who want to run because they're either running for the first time or they feel like or are perceived to have extra uh, steps that are making it tougher for them to run for office or to vote. So I'm hoping sooner than 2050 that, that all those are addressed, those barriers are addressed, and we have public policy and public policy leaders that all want to do that and move forward in that direction. So that's what I hope 2050 or even sooner that it looks like. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll be voting on TikTok. <laughs> oh, man, I, I mean, we probably already are. In fact, I was going to say, you guys might need to make some TikTok videos about that signature. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know, that's some pro bono advice from Trey Borden and company. Yeah. Robbie, thank you so much for joining us. About <laughs> Rob, indeed. Rep Rob, yeah. So, um, so. Thanks a bunch for uh, sharing all that really useful and very pertinent information with us. I'm excited to exercise my right yeah. in November, and I, and I will do that in as safe and secure a way as possible. But thanks a bunch, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Trey. Take care. All right. Take care. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, as always, it's such a good time to talk to you. Uh, fun fact, actually, our third guest this week is Teresa Acuna at the Ash Center at Harvard Kennedy School. And they are also, she is also friends with Robbie. And she told me to tell you that she still dominates that beer pong tournament that was at your home at an undisclosed location at an undisclosed time. So anyways let's talk about the takeaways for what we gonna do the, the what we gonna do of what we gonna do um first of all we have to make sure that these elections work so we need to all as voters be advocating for the legislature and our county clerks or whoever's in charge of our local elections to be uh implementing policies that make voting more accessible whether that means everyone getting the ballot in the mail and mailing it in whether that means having days and days to vote whether that means having all types of kind of language translation uh, and ADA accessible and uh, very, very just as easy to vote as possible. That's what the policies that we need are. And so I think that just making sure that we're doing our job to put their asses to the fire and make sure that like me voting is a priority. And like if I am a disabled, homeless person who can't speak English, I should still be able to have an easy and kind of achievable way to vote, you know? So let's start there. Uh, I also think that, you know, snitches get stitches, but if you see someone trying to mess around with these votes or these polls, then like stitch it up, stitch me up. Like we need to make sure that we are being highly, highly vigilant in terms of how we are making sure that people's votes are not being disenfranchised. And like, there is no kind of, uh, disinformation, there are no conditions at the polls that intimidate. If these fools out here are trying to tell you that it's fine to go to the polls and don't register for your mail-in ballot because COVID shouldn't be a factor while they're in full PPE at the polls, first of all, someone go get them. 
but also make sure you're doing your part to uh, tell your local officials, tell your state leaders, tell your election officials that this stuff is going on. Um, and I think that, you know, thirdly, it just means going out and voting. <laughs> I mean, that should be very, very uh, straightforward, but like, it's very easy to be disenchanted with what's been going on right now. And so I think that in addition to making sure we have the policies that make it possible, easy and safe to vote, in addition to making sure that we are regulating on people who are trying to snatch that away or confuse people or intimidate people at the polls or do anything that kind of uh, gets in your way for voting, um, go and vote. Literally, because the types of policies that we need to enact take a huge groundswell of support. And so I know this is not a reform, but very little, like, out of all the possible people who could vote, not that many do. And that's on us. So don't be complaining. I mean, complain because if shit sucks, like, let them know. But you have a lot more credibility uh, to get something done if you're doing at least the bare, bare minimum, which is voting. So... Anyways, that's this episode. Uh, tomorrow we talk to beer pong champion and also director at the Ash Center for Innovation and uh, Democracy, Teresa Acuna.